Good morning. We're going to be in Revelation chapter 1, verses 9 through 20 this morning. Uh, we're going to be beginning a sort of a mini-series on the first few chapters of Revelation, uh, specifically Revelation 1 through 3, and so we're going to be- begin that this morning. Uh, as you open your Bible up to this passage, just to give you a little bit of context here, um, we're about to read the book of Revelation that was written by a man named John, who's one of the original apostles of the Lord Jesus. And we're going to find him at the sort of end of his life, and he's on an island called Patmos. Uh, this is a small island where criminals were exiled to. And so John has been condemned to a lifelong exile where he was going to finish out his years. And the reason why was for bearing witness to the Lord Jesus. Now, we don't know much about John's experience on this island, but you can imagine sort of what it might be like to be trapped on an island full of criminals, and that's your life now. We know that John was separated from all the people that he knew and loved, particularly the church he was called to pastor. And so John finds himself in pretty difficult circumstances, and we find him here worshiping on the Lord's day. What a great reminder that The worship of God's people is not dictated by circumstance. John here on the island of Patmos is worshiping. So let's pick up in verse 9, chapter 1 of Revelation. He says, I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and impatient endurance that are in Jesus, was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, Write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, to Smyrna, to Pergamum, to Thyatira, to Sardis, to Philadelphia, and to Laodicea. And when I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and on turning I saw seven golden lampstands. In the midst of the lampstands was one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white like wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze refined in a furnace. And his voice was like the roar of many waters. And in his right hand he held seven stars. And from his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. And his face was like the sun shining in full strength. And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last, and the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades. Write, therefore, the things that you have seen, those that are, and those that are to take place after this. As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand, and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches. And the seven lampstands are the seven churches. This is the word of the Lord. Let's ask his help in understanding and applying it this morning. Dear Heavenly Father, you promise that your word will never return to to you void. Father, despite the weakness of the messenger this morning, my prayer is that your word would come to us with power. Lord, that you would use this letter to your church to do what it's done for centuries, to comfort and to strengthen your people. Would you do that this morning? It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So before we go to our our sermon outline, a question that I want to ask you is this. If I were to ask you, what is the greatest need of the church today? How would you answer that question? 
I need to answer out loud. But just think about that. What is the greatest need of the church today? When you think about that, I'm assuming that if I were to ask you individually, the answers would be pretty varied. Right? Perhaps you'd say something like a more robust emphasis on missions, a greater commitment to evangelism. Maybe you would say that the church needs more compassion, greater emphasis on unity. Perhaps you'd say what the church needs more of is more backbone, right? more courage to speak up in increasingly secular culture. And those are good things. And indeed, I think those are things that are needed. But what we're going to see this morning is that I believe those things are actually secondary needs. I think we have a need that's much greater. John was facing pretty adverse circumstances here on Patmos. And he tells us in verse 10 that he was in the spirit on the Lord's day. In other words, he was taken up into a trance-like state where he received a vision from the Lord. And this is not the first time we see this happen in Scripture. We see this happen in Ezekiel. We see it happen to Peter, I believe, back in Acts chapter 10. And while in this state, John hears a voice like a trumpet tell him to get ready to write down everything that he is about to see in a book and to send it to seven churches. Now, these seven churches, we're going to read Jesus' letters to these seven churches over the coming weeks. But all of these churches had a few things in common. First, they're all located in modern Turkey, right in Asia Minor. And they're all located on the same mail route from Patmos. But most importantly, each of these churches were experiencing persecution. And they were experiencing a great temptation to walk away and abandon their faith, to compromise. And this is why John calls himself a brother and a partner in the tribulation. They were in this together. And so you might assume that given those circumstances, their needs were very different from ours. But it's interesting then that Jesus, the first thing that he offers to these churches is actually he doesn't start by telling them that he's going to change their circumstances. He never promises that. And he also doesn't come and tell them something to do. When Jesus comes to these churches who have a great need, where he begins is by giving them the only thing that can actually provide comfort and strength to them. He gives them a vision of himself. This is what you and I need most. We too need to see Jesus and to behold him and be captivated by his glory. And it was for this purpose that the book of Revelation was written. Literally means the revelation of Jesus. It was given to the church for this purpose. And so, Kelly, you can go ahead and go to our outline now. Thank you for holding off on that. Um, Kind of our main idea this morning, what we're going to look at, is that we will only find comfort and strength for endurance in the person in the work, and in the words of Jesus. So let's behold him by looking at each of these elements. Let's start with his person. Let's look at how Jesus is described in this vision from John. There's a lot of rich symbolism here, as there is throughout the whole book of Revelation. But in verse number 13, when John turns around to see who's speaking to him, he is confronted with a vision of one that he calls like a son of man. Now, that title may ring a bell to you, and if it does, it's because this is how Jesus refers to himself over 80 times throughout the Gospels. This is Jesus' favorite designation for himself, is the Son of Man. That may seem like a very anticlimactic title to pick for yourself, 
but it actually points back to the Old Testament. In Daniel seven thirteen through 14, Daniel describes a vision that he received from God, and this is what he says. He says, Behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man, and he came to the Ancient of Days, God, and was presented before him, and to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples and nations and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that will never be destroyed. A lot of times when we hear this phrase, Son of Man, we think that it's highlighting the fact that Jesus, God the Son, became man. And what Daniel chapter 7 makes abundantly clear is that this title, Son of Man, actually doesn't point to his humanity, but to his divinity. Jesus is God. He is the promised king. And he has been given a kingdom that will not shake and will not pass away. And next, Jesus has given another list of descriptors here that we're actually going to talk about in the coming weeks. So we're not going to look at these individually right now but he's described as having hair that is white like wool like snow eyes like a flame of fire feet like burnished bronze a voice like the roar of many waters with a double-edged sword coming out of his mouth and a face shining like the sun and taken together this description of jesus shows us that he is the great prophet the great priest and the great king that was promised for centuries. He is the one who is a victorious conqueror, who is infinitely wise, infinitely powerful, and infinitely glorious. This comes from Daniel 10, where Daniel receives another vision from God. And in it, he describes a son of man who comes not just bringing salvation but one who actually is salvation. Church, the way Jesus is described in this letter, it describes someone who is glorious beyond compare. And in that glory contained in his majesty is one who saves. And unfortunately, what we tend to do here uh, is we tend to sort of reduce Jesus down well below this vision of him in Revelation. See, every other religion in the world does not need their deity to still be alive, right? All they need is their teachings. Christianity is unique in the sense that if Jesus is not alive and reigning today, there is no Christianity. We must have a living Savior. And to be saved, we do not simply need a list of teachings. We need a person, one who is salvation. Friends, Jesus is the gospel. He is the one who saves. But here in the South, the way, one of the ways I think we sort of reduce Jesus down is we take him from being a person and instead we sort of make him a list of principles. Al Mohler, the president of the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary in Louisville, tells a story. One morning he was reading the newspaper, and I guess on a whim he looked at the advice column. And when he was reading the advice column, he came across where a desperate mother had written into a columnist because her daughter had become an atheist. And she had become an atheist despite how the mother described being raised in a family with strong Christian values. And the mother was distraught. How in the world could this happen? 
And Moeller points out that within that statement, we begin to actually see part of the problem. How could this girl, who was raised under strong Christian principles, become an atheist? Moeller says this. He said, hell will be filled with many people who avidly committed to Christian values. Christian values cannot save anyone, and they never will. Salvation only comes by the gospel of Jesus Christ. Friends, Christian values are good. They're necessary, but they actually flow from a right relationship with this Jesus. We cannot elevate Christian principles above Jesus, the person of Jesus. If we want to see those we love receive salvation, then we cannot simply point them to a Christian worldview and Christian rules. We must point them to the person of Jesus. He is the gospel. He alone can save, and he alone can offer the comfort and the strength that we need to endure. We must see the person of Jesus. Not only do we find comfort and strength in his person, but we also find strength and comfort in his work. In verse 13, when John starts describing this son of man, did you notice where he was standing? Verse 13, he says that he saw seven golden lampstands, and in the midst of the lampstands, one like the son of man. Jesus is standing in the midst of seven golden lampstands. Jesus tells us in verse 20 that those lampstands represent the seven churches he's writing to. Now, like everything in Revelation, this is symbolic, right? If we don't understand that Revelation uses symbolic language, you'll get confused in a hurry reading through this book. All right, but that number seven represents completeness, fullness, or perfection. So when John tells us that Jesus is standing in the midst of seven congregations, What he's really telling us is that Jesus stands in the midst of every congregation, in all places, at all times. Jesus stands in the midst of his church, Big C Church. So why are the congregations represented by lampstands? Think about it, right? Because lampstands uphold the lamps that give light. Jesus said in Matthew 5, 14 through 16, You church are the light of the world a city located on a hill cannot be hidden people do not light a lamp and put it under a basket but on a lampstand and it gives light to all the house in the same way let your light shine before people so that they can see your good deeds and give honor to your father in heaven local church local congregations uphold and support christians who are the light of the world So what do we see Jesus doing among these congregations? Back in the Old Testament, when God was giving instructions for the tabernacle, he gave specific assignments to the priest who was to go in and sort of carry out certain duties within the tabernacle. And one of the priest's responsibilities was to go in and tend to these lampstands that were in the tabernacle. Friend, what we see Jesus doing here is he is tending the lamps. He's caring for them. He's keeping them lit. Why? Because lamps do not produce their own light. It is a derived light. We are indeed the light of the world, as Jesus says. But church, we possess no light in and of ourselves. The light that we possess is a borrowed light. It is a light that is derived from the light of the world himself. Jesus walks among these lampstands. 
and he keeps their flames burning brightly. Now what this tells us is, is that the Bible has no concept of a Lone Ranger Christian who has no need for the local church. Right here in Revelation 1 in the heavenly realm, we see that at the center of God's plan for getting his gospel out to the nations are believers in local churches where they receive the light of Christ from the teaching and preaching of his word. For this reason, Jesus' primary work and concern is caring for local churches and for the believers within them. Uh, My parents just bought a new house, and I really love cutting grass. I think I've probably told you all that, but it just gives me a lot of satisfaction. And so I go over and I mow their grass about once a week, and specifically I love edging, you know, like any of the kind of like really tidying up, like I want it to like a golf course when I leave. And uh, and so I go over there, and I work really hard to make this yard look really nice. And then I turn around, and their neighbor, very good friends of ours, uh, his name's Alan, and he is retired. And Alan, uh, you know, like if I put in, you know, some effort keeping their yard looking nice, Alan being retired is smoking me, all right? Alan fertilizes their grass. He's putting out pre-emergent, post-emergent. He's mowing three times a week. There's not a leaf that falls in this man's yard that he's not out there with tweezers. You know, I mean, it's like I feel pretty good about my work until I turn around and I see what he's doing. And the reason why is because that is quite literally his sole obsession, right? At least you would think that looking at his yard. He pays a great deal of attention to this yard. It's his focus. He loves doing it. In the same way, Jesus' sole focus, the thing that drives him, the thing that he spends the most time on is tending to local churches and the people within them. Jesus cares about the local church and he cares about the believers within them. One commentator pointed out here that Jesus wearing this gold sash and white robe, this is a priestly garment. And he says that underneath that golden sash is the heart of one who cares for his people. Saints, please take heart and know that the flame of your faith is being tended to by Jesus. It's continually being stoked and maintained by the one who walks among the lampstands. You are not keeping your faith upheld. Jesus is keeping your faith upheld. He tends to you with diligence. Jesus, even at this very moment, is ruling over and ministering to his church as our great prophet, priest, and king to ensure that the light of his gospel continues to go forth through his people. And this is why we can find great comfort and strength both in who he is and in the work He's doing, and we can also find comfort in his words. This is point number three. John, when he sees the Son of Man, verse 17, I want you to notice his response. He says, When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not, I'm the first and the last. Notice that when John sees the glory of and the majesty, and the holiness, and the wisdom, and the power of Jesus. His response is the only right response we can have to such a vision. He falls down in worship and in terror. This is an apostle who is advanced in years, mature in his faith, 
long-schooled in godliness, and he utterly falls apart when he sees Jesus. And this is not unique to John. It's the same thing that happened to Daniel. It happened to Isaiah in Isaiah 6. We sang about that in our last song this morning. Why does this happen? When godly people encounter God, why is it that the response seems to be falling apart, falling on their face? Spurgeon answers and says this, The most spiritual and sanctified minds, when they have fully perceived the majesty and the holiness of God, are so greatly conscious of of the great disproportion between themselves and the Lord that they are humbled and filled with holy awe and even dread and alarm. When Jesus' glory and holiness are perceived, so too is our sin. When we become aware of how holy and majestic he is, it helps us see ourselves rightly and we see that we are not those things. That there's a great disproportion between him and ourselves, as Spurgeon said. And this is what John experiences in the presence of Jesus. Then Jesus draws near to John. And he lays his right hand on him and we hear Jesus speak for the first time. And what are the first words that Jesus says to this man who is rightly terrified? He says, John, fear not. He tells him not to be afraid because he is the first and the last, the living one who died. He says, but behold, I'm alive forevermore and I have the keys to death and Hades. John feels the reality of his sin, and Jesus offers him assurance of forgiveness, that he, Jesus, the first and the last, the eternal one, died and was resurrected to forgive sinners like John. And because he did, he is now Lord of the living and the dead. In this moment, John experiences the true paradox of Christianity, that the person who is supremely terrifying, is also supremely comforting. Friends, we need to understand that fear of the Lord and comfort from the Lord go hand in hand. Why? Why do we so often as Christians feel so little comfort and strength in the Christian life? Because the Jesus that we worship is far too small. See, we not only only diminish Jesus by reducing him down to a set of Christian values, but we also have another common way that we shrink Jesus down to a size that we like and can tolerate. My second favorite pastor to listen to behind Kevin Corley is a guy named Ray Ortland. He's up in Nashville. And uh, he said one time in a sermon, profoundly, uh, that the greatest threat to the church in the United States of America is not an increasingly secular culture, nor is it, a, you know, is it like the enemy government out there. The enemy's not out there. He says the enemy that the church needs to be most concerned about is the bobblehead Jesus Jr. we've created in worship. We have taken this glorious reigning king and we have sort of whittled him down to a version of Jesus that waits at our beck and call, is more concerned with our comfort than our holiness, and someone that, strangely enough, just never disagrees with us. Friend, that version of Jesus does not exist. That is not the Jesus of the Bible. That's an idol your heart created. 
if the Jesus you worship is not big enough to terrify you, he is also not big enough to comfort you. And this is not a foreign concept to us, right? If I were to ask you, growing up, who was the person that scared you the most, your answer would probably be your dad. But if I also ask you, who made you feel the safest? You probably also would have said your dad, right? Why? Because the person that could snap us like a twig if he wanted to is also the person who has demonstrated his love for us and shown us time and time again that he will do anything to protect us and do anything to provide for us. Fear and comfort go hand in hand. The fear of the Lord does not stand in opposition to your peace. It is the beginning of you finding true peace. When this glorious Jesus speaks gospel comforts to you, you can take him at his word because he alone can say to you, fear not, your sins are forgiven. So we need to see Jesus in his person, in his work, and we need to hear his words and take him at those words. And so just a question and an exhortation as we close, and we'll be, we'll be done this morning. First question I would ask you is this. Has your heart ever laid eyes on Jesus in such a way that it terrified you? Have you ever had a moment of perceiving something of the glory of Christ in such a way that your sin became a reality? Perhaps you've spent your whole life seeing Jesus as just a set of good principles to live by. Or maybe you've seen him as your buddy and you've said, you know, hey, me and Jesus just sort of have this thing worked out. And if that's you, my prayer for you is that you would truly see Jesus as he is for the first time and that your sin would become clear and you would throw yourself upon his mercy. He stands ready to receive such people. And second, to those who are in Christ, my exhortation to you is to look to Jesus and ask for an expanded view of him. In his book, Prince Caspian, C.S. Lewis describes a scene where sweet Lucy returns to Narnia to see Aslan. And when she sees him again, she says this. She said, Aslan, you're bigger. And he said, that's because you're older, little one. She said, not because you are. And he said, I'm not. But every year you grow, you will find me bigger. That, friends, is the Christian life. With every passing day, may the Lord cause us to see him as larger and more majestic than we did the day before. Because that's where we're going to find our comfort and our strength for endurance. He is the Holy One in our midst, the one who will save to the uttermost, who will never leave us nor forsake us. In this, may we find strength and comfort as we look to him. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, apart from your